Welcome to the Data Bites podcast by Women in Data, where we give you your weekly bite-sized dose of career development advice, industry case studies, and career stories to help you excel in your data career. Today, I'm chatting with Archana Despondi, VP of Enterprise Architecture and Data Service for Business Technology at Workday. In this episode, we take a deep dive into enterprise architecture, how she solves complex business problems, and why communication is so important in every technical role, particularly for enterprise architects. Arjuna is a strategic and genuine individual, and probably by the end of this episode, you may be inspired to be an enterprise architect yourself. Enjoy! Arjuna, welcome to the Data Bytes podcast. So happy to be chatting with you today. Happy to be here too. I've been looking forward to this conversation because I have to confess that early on in my career, I got to work closely with an enterprise architect and I fell in love with the job and asked them, like, what do I have to do to become an enterprise architect? And they said, eventually you just learn a lot of things and then you'll become an enterprise architect. And I was like, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. So today... It's so exciting to be talking with the VP of Enterprise Architect to provide some insight into what enterprise architects actually do and what you've done to get there on your career journey. Absolutely. So can you just give myself and the audience a little background of like what role enterprise architects play in an organization and then what was your career path to becoming an enterprise architect and now the VP of enterprise architecture? Uh, sure. So I have to say, partly the advice that was given to you is somewhat true, but really from a responsibility perspective, an enterprise architect is responsible for strategically tracking and driving maturity and transformation of key business capabilities in an enterprise, right? And what that really means is collaborating cross-functionally to really create the current state capability map with all the process and the technologies underneath, understanding where the organization is headed from a two-year, three-year target state perspective, and then really creating a path for what that target state might look like through a reference architecture. So... It really requires a lot of cross-functional engagement, cross-functional domain knowledge. So to the point that you heard, you know, eventually you figure out because as you move on different roles and as you learn new things, you really start to build that knowledge across the ecosystem. But an enterprise architect also ideally does this in a very pragmatic way. Um, And I think that's really the key. It's not about that ivory tower theoretical way of putting it all together. It has to be practical. It has to, it it is something that can be executed as well. So I really feel that's that's, uh, the key responsibility of first defining, you know, the target state architecture, capability maturity, and then more importantly, working with rest of the teams to ensure that the ongoing execution is also aligned to the target state and evolving as well. Right. It's not uh, defined and done. There's constant evolution as well that happens, making sure that, you know, there's a tighter interlock with the execution teams as well in, um, you know, following the uh, target state, the standards and guidelines and so on and so forth. So that's really what an enterprise architecture does. Um, your 
Second question was around what was my path of, uh, you know, becoming to my current role of uh, VP of Enterprise Architecture. And I have to say, it's really been a mix of everything. Like I started my journey in programming um, and uh, I was programming back in client server technologies to database technologies, Java, um, you name it, you know, uh, you coding is, is, is something once you know how to code, picking a new technology in a programming language is not that difficult. But then I also was a tech lead then responsible for overseeing the architecture design as well as overseeing the execution. Um, so I think it's really been a mix of technology and exposure to multiple domains. I started my career in consulting, helping a large copier uh, organization with store procedures. Then I moved on to writing Java code for a credit monitoring company. Then I moved on to leading website um, execution in a financial services company. Then I was a chief architect in a security company overseeing and leading their key strategic initiatives for moving to subscription models, CRM consolidation, security, and so on to really where I am today. So I think um, it's really that cross-functional domain knowledge and really having that programming background, but more importantly, just the ability to work on so many different domains has really enriched my experience and my skills to think more end-to-end and to think more broadly and strategically as well. Um, So that's really where my path has been. So one of the first things you mentioned in terms of like what an enterprise architect does is create that vision of the future and what that end state looks like. And to me, that sounds like a very, in a way, creative role. I mean, on paper, enterprise architecture does not sound like a creative function at all, right? But if you're coming up with an end state and a future vision of what things look like, to me, that actually sounds there's like a lot of creativity of in a way of how you want the world to be shaped, or at least the world within a business function to be shaped. Do you find creativity to be a big role in this position as well? Absolutely. And one of the myths I'll, I'll also outline is sometimes, you know, the enterprise architect role is frowned upon thinking that all they're really responsible for is putting some boxes on a, on a slide. Right. But I think what really folks forget is precisely those boxes on the slide really helps connect the various teams or the people to foster collaboration and really align to the target state vision that you just mentioned. Right. So the creativity definitely comes in terms of having that compelling narrative, you know, on the slides in terms of setting that vision. But I also want to you know, definitely emphasize that it's not about those slides, right? It's about how Mm -hmm. those slides really help connect everyone together to the vision. That's really very important too. I think that's such a great point. So I am someone who thinks in terms of boxes and connectivity. I would rather write in terms of diagrams and actually write with words. But that's so beautiful. I think it's so much more than just what the boxes on the slides mean. It's connecting people. And there's people behind each of those boxes or applications, whatever it may be creating in that in-state. And 
I think it provides a lot more exposure to people. It's not just this hardcore technical aspect, although there are a lot of technical aspects, as you mentioned, all the domain areas that you need to know and that are um, vital to this role, but you're actually having a big influence on how people collaborate. And that to me is really exciting. Absolutely is, right? And and I, I only said this because earlier on when I was an architect, this is what I would ask, right? What do we as do other than just creating those boxes? And and I had to really sell the story myself. And the good thing is, right, um, the leadership sees it right away. So I think that's that's because obviously at, at that level, you know, it's it's is everyone aligned? How are we collaborating? Is every everyone uh, saying the same thing about the gaps that we have. And I think that's really where the enterprise architect plays a key role, right? So um, it's it's something that that I have learned along the way as well in terms of not, you know, truly educating the value of those slides and, and uh, the creativity that goes behind it. And there's a lot of work that goes behind it, you know, for those who are used to creating slides, I'm sure will appreciate the amount of work that goes behind creating what might just seem like a box diagram, right? Um, so yes. I, I always like to emphasize that. So you may have a few of our audience members sold on becoming an enterprise architect and then soon later, hopefully having a role similar to yours of a VP of enterprise architecture. What advice do you have then for those looking to move into this position as a career path? Well, a couple of things I would say, right? So one is, I think the technical expertise is given, um, but rather than focusing on depth of a given expertise, right, try to expand the horizon to include any adjacent technologies or any adjacent domains as well. And then more importantly, think about the business impact, right? Sometimes being in the technical field, we are so engrossed in just the technicalities of it without necessarily taking the time to understand how is this really helping business? So that definitely would be a key. I think the second thing I would recommend is, you know, just starting to connect with the different teams as well to understand overall lay of the land again, right? Um, you know, break the silos, get out of your comfort zone and start collaborating with other stakeholders out of curiosity to understand what's happening and, and start to stitch, you know, that end-to-end view together. Um, and I would say, you know, Communication is important um, because an enterprise architect is really responsible for communicating across multiple levels in the organization with the right level of details. So I think that's important. And one last thing I really like to advise all the individuals who come to me for mentoring is to not get bogged down by EA, not a people manager role. I think the key responsibility of an EA is to really lead by influence and it is a leadership role. So it's not about the titles, but it's really about how you are bringing everyone along in terms of really transforming the business. It's actually a, it's, it's actually such an important aspect of leadership without having the power, but leading by influence. Um, so that would be my advice, not just not, not to get bogged down by the titles or not having people management responsibility I think once you have demonstrated the ability to lead by influence, the title and everything else just comes along. 
Yes, and I think that's just such a great reminder for all of us that leadership is not just about a title, but it's about the influence we have and the people we inspire and the change that we make. And all of us have the opportunity to have to be leaders in our communities or in our families or wherever we are by sharing that influence and inspiring that change. So whether it's for EAs or for individuals in general, um, it's a great reminder. We all have the power to be leaders in our communities. So thank you. So one of the things you also love doing and is solving complex business problems. And I'm always really curious about what your framework is for approaching business problems. And if you have a particular framework you use to solve a lot of business problems that you've encountered over the years. Sure. Um, what I use is, is the classic people, process, and technology framework, but with the added dimension of data. I think data is becoming increasingly more important such that it should not be an afterthought. It should be clubbed along with the rest of the dimensions to be looked at, right? So that's really the framework that, you know, I've really been um, using now. And I think it's really important to, to put some structure or framework because complex problems are complex because either there's not enough understanding of what the problem is, or there are just too many people process systems involved that nobody wants to take in ownership or, or it's just a complete white space, right? So I think to bring some clarity into the complexity, I always like to have some structure. And I found that, you know, outlining the problem and really synthesizing more importantly, the problem into people, process, technology, and data has really helped. And what was the inspiration behind adding data to people, process, and technology. So if you've worked in technology for a while, you've heard of the framework of people, process, and technology, and it is tried and true. But what was the kind of aha moment where you're like, okay, that's good, but we need to add in data to this as well. Was there a specific time or example that you can point this to? Absolutely. Um, so as, as I said, right, my career path to my current role has been a mix of various uh, roles from programming, but also various mix of IC to management level as well. And I think the aha moment for data was around four, four or five years ago when I moved from being an EA to leading a data team. And what I realized with that shift is while I was an EA, I focused on the people process technology aspects. And then understanding that data delivery and how it was managed, the data reporting was always an afterthought. However, what really started to bother me was we were not looking at the data quality that was being generated by the same application and processes that were part of the overall enterprise architecture um, emphasis, right? So I think for me, that was a reminder that when we talk about our capabilities and maturity and so on and so forth, it's equally important to understand the processes and the applications and what data it is generating and whether it is complete and whether it is of good quality to then be able to drive the right reporting and insights. So for me, that was really the moment. And I have to say it came with a shift in my role and responsibility to then realize 
you know, uh, challenges with bad data only to find out it was all about upstream. And I'm sure many folks here in the audience will resonate with this, right? Whenever there are data quality issues, it always becomes the data team's problem. But when you really troubleshoot them further, they all really originate upstream. It's bad processes and, you know, bad coding or whatever the case might be. That is usually the cause of this bad data. Um, so I think just looking at it a little bit more holistically and in an interrelated manner um, is really the key as well. Yes, I could not agree more. I, I actually hate the term dirty data or bad data because I think it's kind of a lazy term for saying that our business processes are out of whack and don't match what we intended or there was you know, some mistake or something that happened, right? Because the data in and of itself is not good or bad. It just is, right? <laughs> there's there's nothing that the data did. The data originates from something that we as humans do. And I think it's an easy way to kind of push off blame that we don't want to have ourselves, right? <laughs> and, and it's not necessarily pushing off the blame either, right? But it's it's about educating, right? Because it's like the processes, and the applications, again, like I said, are the ones generating the data. You know, it, the, the issues come to light only when we are looking at it from a different lens. But I think that's, that's really where, to your point, right? I think the bad data term itself is a little bit confusing. And, and I, I really feel that people are still struggling to figure out how to solve for data quality issues, right? Because there is not always that alignment on the right processes and policies, and that's usually what data governance is all about. Um, but I think just looking at it holistically always helps, at least to raise the awareness, right? And I think that's mm -hmm. a good start always. Yes, I think it's a great start. And I think it's also just remembering that we don't live in a perfect world either, right? There are many accidents and outliers that happen all the time, and that's an opportunity for us to get curious about them. So maybe we don't want to get rid of of bad data or dirty data, but rather get a little bit more curious about what that data may mean or why it may have happened. And I think you, you said something which is spot on, right? Which is we don't live in a perfect world either. So I think for bad data, you know, my philosophy has always been speak of data with data, right? Quality is, is such a general perception as well. So the key is really to baseline the quality metrics, set a realistic target, right? And again, I underscore realistic. And then, you know, put continuous measures and optimization in place to be able to iterate over those benchmarks. Um, but I really don't like it when somebody just comes and generalizes, we have data quality issues, right? Um, we, we need to put some numbers and KPIs around it to be able to quantify. So data with data is one of my key guiding principles as well. <laughs> I love that. That's a great takeaway. Data with data. So one of the things you mentioned was how important communication is in enterprise architecture and across the organization, really in any data role. So how do you see, how do you use communication when you're solving complex business problems? I think communication is extremely critical, right? It's critical in terms of how you're approaching and how you're communicating, especially on complex problems, because you don't want to offend anyone and neither do you want to tell anyone how to do their job, right? So I think how you're really communicating is, is also, you know, extremely important. 
when we are communicating is important too. You don't want to prematurely communicate without having all the due diligence and information compiled. Um, and, and when you're talking about complex problems, again, there are usually a lot of stakeholders that are involved. So communication definitely helps. The timely communication definitely helps align all the key stakeholders, right, in terms of not just the awareness, but key progress that has been made or key decisions and the context and the why and so on and so forth. So I really feel that uh, for me, the communication aspects has been extremely important in terms of really balancing skills such as, um, you know, learning to listen or listening to learn. I think that that's a skill that that comes with experience as well, which is, you know, the initially you are listening to really learn, uh, but then once you are bubbling with ideas, it's really important that you let others speak as well. Um, so that's really the how part in terms of how you how you communicate, and I've I've obviously learned that from experience as well. Um, I think the other important aspect that I will emphasize is the in the how part is the narrative too, right? Because complex problems do require, you know, beyond the awareness stage, when you're ready to begin, you know, getting the stakeholder buy-in and execution, is the right narrative as well, right? And and the right narrative on why we should do it, why we should do it now, what's the business impact and what are the trade-offs? So I think it's really important to package everything in the right narrative to be able to sell to the business stakeholders. Um, so I think those are important aspects but I think overall, what I would say is, again, how you communicate, what you communicate, right? Communication also helps demonstrate your thought leadership. It helps really demonstrate your brand, which I think eventually helps to build trust, which is so critical in solving these complex problems. Trust trust is, can, can really do wonders. And I think communication is one of the tools that helps you get there. So you mentioned having the right narrative. Can you explain a little bit more about what that means? I mean, I think all of us have a different idea of what a narrative is. Is it like talking in a different voice? Is it speaking a different language? Can you explain a little bit more about what that narrative looks like in a business setting? Well, a narrative, I would say, resembles a story, right? Which is, how would you go about telling the story of a complex problem with a happy ending? Right? And the happy ending being, meaning the ending that you really want to achieve. I think the tone is, is important, absolutely, right? How you communicate and how you get the buy-in tone and how you're modulating your voice, that, that all is absolutely very important. But I think the content that you really create and the taglines, right, as you're progressing, just like reading a storybook, right? What's, what's the, the first chapter was the first title, you know, how are you progressing through the story from one slide to the other and what's the tagline, right? Um, for me, that's really the narrative, right? Which is how do you really create a compelling story with the why and the how and, and the what to really able to get what you want, what you want the organization uh, to get from, you know, the narrative. So when you're going to create these narratives and communicate with different people at all levels of the organization, what type of preparation do you do going into these conversations? Because I'm guessing it's not 
and maybe for you now it comes very naturally, right? But if someone's more earlier on in their career, what tips can you give in terms of preparation to convey that narrative and properly communicate that story? One, I would say it, it, it takes a lot of time, right, to create that narrative. It's by no means an easy task and definitely not for, you know, problems that are highly complex in nature. Um, so what I would say is communication or to create that narrative, right, communicating with different levels within the organization is really, really important as well. And while there is no silver bullet in terms of how do you nail it down, it differs based on the leadership too, right? Because I've seen some leaders who are so hands-on practitioners and they can get into the nth level of detail versus some really like to be high level. But what I would say is I've usually followed like the communication funnel, right? Uh, Where initially you have to talk to a lot of tech leads or developers, right? Just to understand the what and the how. And as we all know, right? tech leads and developers are very eager to get on to many meetings, as many meetings as we want to start whiteboarding on the design sessions and so on and so forth. So that's, that's really where to me, you start to pick up the beginnings of what your story would be looking like. Right. And that usually has many meetings with really people who know um, what they do the best. And the preparation there is you have to know as well, the business domain, the problem, the technology that you are after. So that's really one prep, you know, that you would need to do to be able to engage with the broader set of, uh, you know, stakeholders or the key members within within the team um, to be able to, you know, get the level of information that, that you need. The next then are, you know, the C-level or the senior level leaders, right? And as we all know, um, their calendars are extremely busy. You know, you're probably only, only going to get one or two meetings with them. Um, and mostly 30 minutes or less, lucky if you get an hour or so. So there, you really have to be very articulate about the why and the impact, right? Not so much of the how and what they're not really interested in that. It's really more about the why and the business impact. And I think the preparation there really is around, we already spoke about, you know, understanding the technology and the domain, but I think the preparation there is around understanding the stakeholders themselves, right? What's what's top of their mind? I mean, you don't want to be going and selling a senior leader about building an ML capability if what's top of their mind is the data quality, right? So really knowing your stakeholders and what's top of their mind is really, really very important um, so that you are able to make the most of the time that you have with them. Um I also think that for, you know, the narrative and for the C-level um, executives, it's also really important to practice your communication. And I still do it. And and what I mean by practicing is, you know, obviously uh, recording and rehearsing. But once you hear yourselves, which is, by the way, not the most interesting thing to do, uh, but sometimes you have to do it because only then you know, are you being repetitive? Are you using a lot of filler words? Is the messaging really clear and concise? Because, you know, as we compile more data, we are also excited to talk a lot about it, right? But we have to really be very, we have to crystallize the messaging with the right context and the right purpose. And that requires iteration. So preparing and rehearsing by recording yourselves and listening to it and continuing to optimize your messaging 
I think I think definitely helps. And sometimes if the meeting is really important enough, I know I have someone else listen to my narrative too and give me guidance too. So I think that has also helped. Um, you know, you you always find someone who has done this before, who has met with that stakeholder before and know what their style is. Um, so I think getting some tips on 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 the style of the leadership also helps beforehand. And, um, you know, having them guide you also helps. So I, I would say those are some of the tips that I have used in terms of communicating, again, across the diverse, uh, you know, um, team members and leaders, especially when it comes to creating the right narrative and selling it. Yeah, and that's a great tip. I know it's painful for all of us to hear our own voice, but now more than ever, it's so easy for us to be able to record and to listen and play things back. I know even on like PowerPoint presentations, you can practice record and it gives you insights. It has text audio to tell you how many filler words you're using and how clear and concise. So it's a great opportunity for us to take the tools that are available to, to make sure we can practice and refine those skills. So thank you for sharing those tips. Absolutely. And I'll say it's not easy, right? It's really not easy watching you either. Listening is one thing, watching oneself is, is the other thing, but, you know, it becomes a habit afterwards. So, uh, you know, uh, don't get again bogged down by, I don't want to hear myself, neither do I want to watch myself. I think, think about the outcome, right? I think it just helps you become better at presenting. Yes. Great advice. Well, I think that's a great place for us to wrap up for today. If you're ready, I'd love to move into the rapid fire questions. Oh, sure. All right. So what song do you currently have on repeat? Well, I have many, but the one I'll, I'll pick here is Breathe In by Ariana Grande because that's the way me and my daughter are born. Oh, I love that. That's so special. Uh, favorite place you've traveled? It has to be Banff and Jasper National Park. It's just beautiful and heavenly out there. Happiness is? Peace of mind. In the next five years, I hope to? In the next five years, I really hope to have the same energy and passion for learning and nurturing what's really important to me. I think that's a great hope to have. I hope that's something we all hope to have as well. And then last but not least, to me, curiosity is? To me, curiosity is not being shy and really asking lots of questions on why and how. No question is stupid. Um, so go out there and, and uh, you know engage and ask lots of questions. I love it. Well, Archana, this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. If people are interested in connecting with you further or learning more about your work, what's the best way for them to do that? Oh, LinkedIn would be the best way. All right. Well, we'll put that in the show notes. Again, thank you for coming on the Data Bytes podcast, and I look forward to more conversations. And thank you for having me. Thanks everyone for listening today. Remember to keep learning and stay curious and we will talk to you next time. If you're looking for more resources to further your data career or find your tribe, we encourage you to become a member at womenindata.org. See you on the other side.